BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So we are learning more and more rather distressing stuff, basically, news, as it were, about January 6th. And this is not just about, you know, the attack on the Capitol. There's a, there's a much, much larger issue here, which is the end of democracy and the end of America. I mean, that's literally what we're talking about here. It turns out that, you know, based on these latest indictments, I mean, this is just jaw-dropping stuff. Just as a starting point, a guy called into C-SPAN, and uh, he said he was uh, Tom from Woodbridge, Virginia. And he says, I was there on January 6th. I work in the intelligence community and have for many, many years. There were experienced agitators. Now, he's not talking about the Trump fans who broke down the doors and smashed the windows and spread, smeared feces on the wall, uh, and on the walls in the, in the U.S. Capitol and, and damaged some of the paintings and, and you know, it's like killed five people, basically. Uh, he's not talking about them. He's trying to say that there were Antifa people there or Black Lives Matter people there. He says, there were experienced agitators that took advantage of a great deal of anxiety and passion in the country and did it on purpose to defame the presidency of Donald Trump. He says, I know that for a fact. And then he starts talking about how Trump's going to get reelected in 2024. This is what this new indictment has laid out. This, this was just filed. It was actually, it was originally filed on May 26th, but we just saw the public facing piece of it. This is an indictment of the people. Remember the, the, on the video of January 6th, there was a crowd shot and through the crowd was snaking this, this uh, they call it a stack, this group of people who were all wearing camouflage and, and body armor. And they were, and each one had an, a hand on the shoulder of the person in front of them. And they were moving through the crowd toward the front, toward the Capitol building. Those are the people that are on the receiving end of this indictment. And they were communicating with each other with what they thought was a secure messaging app. But, hey, there's no such thing in the United States. I mean, the you know, federal law since, since uh, the Patriot Act, et cetera, basically says that you cannot run a messaging app that the federal government can't snoop on. 
<laughs> it's just there, there is no such thing. So, you know, we've, we've got them, as it were. Uh, obviously, that's a whole other conversation about, you know, privacy. But first of all, they had a quick reaction force just across the river in Virginia. Now, keep in mind, guns are illegal in D.C., D.C. has, the, I believe, the most restrictive gun laws in the, in the nation. That's why the Heller decision was, you know, pointed right at D.C. So you can't bring guns into the District of Columbia. Even Republican legislators are okay with that. So what these guys did is they brought all these weapons into Virginia, into this hotel in Virginia. And a, a bunch of them stayed back in Virginia because here was the plan. I mean, this is the, I'll just tell you my own words, then I'll go back and read some of the documents to you. The plan was storm the Capitol, attack, you know, try to stop Congress from, from certifying the election. And in the process, because there was a big Trump rally, wherever there's a big Trump rally, you know, where Donald Trump is speaking, there's always protesters, counter-protesters. So they were assuming that there would be anti-Trump protesters who would show up at that rally that Trump spoke at, the one that was in part paid for by uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife's organization. The assumption was that there would be anti-Trump protesters. And if they could get in a fight, even five guys, even a small fight with anti-Trump protesters, then Donald Trump could declare that a, a crisis and invoke the, uh, the Insurrection Act. And the Insurrection Act would allow him to declare martial law, to shut the country down and to say, okay, that's it. Congress is suspended. Everything is suspended. I mean, this, the, 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 it's, it's there. It's in the law. And that would be the end of democracy in America. And that would be the beginning of Donald Trump running this country, basically, you know, the way that Orban runs Hungary or Putin runs Russia or, you know, fill in the blank, right? Pick your country that was a democracy for a while and isn't anymore. This is uh, Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes was in on this conversation, and he had been uh, hanging out with Michael Flynn, publicly calling for Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act. And this is from one of their messages. He says, if the fight comes, let the fight come. Let Antifa, if they go kinetic on us, which is kind of military talk for, you know, uh, aggressive action. If they go kinetic on us, then we'll go kinetic on them. Let the fight start there. That'll give President Trump what he needs, frankly. If things go kinetic, good. If they throw bombs at us and shoot us, great. Because that brings the president his reason and rationale for dropping the Insurrection Act. So our posture is going to be that we're posted outside of D.C. awaiting the president's orders. We hope he will give us the orders. We want him to declare an insurrection and to call us up as the militia. So this was their plan. Can you imagine what would happen if they had pulled that off? If Donald Trump had declared an insurrection... What are, the, what are the Democrats going to do at that point? Sue at the Supreme Court? Well, you know, he has the authority on the, under the Insurrection Act. Yes, there is a fight going on in front of Congress. The problem that these guys had, the Oath Keepers and these other groups that, and, and, and all these people that they were able to drag into this thing, 
and January 6th, the problem that they had is that the only people who were fighting them were the Capitol Police. And they sent over 140 of them to the hospital. This is, or, or perhaps it was just there was a total of 140 hospitalizations, but they sent a bunch, of, I believe it was 140 uh, Capitol Police who went to the hospital. So would this have worked? Are we that close to losing democracy? And if the next Republican president can collaborate with one of these groups, and by the way, we want to know what happened on January 5th in the Trump hotel, in the Trump private suite, where uh, Republican Senator Tuberville was there, and perhaps at least one other senator. There are questions whether Josh Hawley was there or others. Um, and, you know, Don Jr. and all these other, you know, uh, was that a war room? Was that a planning? I mean, it, it sure looks to me like this was a naked attempt to end democracy in America. And if one of these neo-fascists gets into the White House in 2024, I don't even think it's a question if they'll try to repeat this. I think it's a given. And if you think I'm, an exagger I'm exaggerating, look at what's going on in Arizona right now. Look at the law that the Democrats just stopped in Texas that would have given election judges, Republican election judges, the ability to say, you know, these votes from this precinct here, where 80% of the people in the precinct are black, these votes, we think there's some fraud. We're just not going to count them. And by the way, that those same provisions are in laws being that have already been passed in 12 states or provisions similar to them and are being proposed in 47 states. We are watching the slow motion destruction of democracy in America. And we've got to stand up. We've got to push back. The Democratic Party needs to be leading that charge. This is the Tom Hartman program. Biden needs to be calling this stuff out just clearly and vividly. Okay, let's see here. Steve in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Steve, what's up? Oh, hi. Hey, Tom. Oh, my God, I can't agree more with what you said, and it, I'm, I'm absolutely scared beyond belief. Um, in Cinnamon Mansion, I have no idea what's going on, but I think you're spot on on that, too. And uh, I think they're bought if, off. If we don't, or they're being bought off. I think they're either bought off yeah. or they're in the process of being bought off. Oh, I sure think so. You know, if we don't get S-1 passed and, you know, with these infrastructure bills and everything else, democracy will die. And what I have a question for you is, do you think there is any way that we can make Puerto Rico and D.C. states so that we can get, you know, four other Democratic senators before 2022 elections so that we can then bust up the filibuster, you know, and get some of these important legislative bills passed? This may be a nuclear option, but I feel it must be done, you know, to save democracy. If there's any way we could just force that issue, what do you think, Tom? There is a debate about whether that, whether statehood could be subject to the filibuster. And there are legal scholars on both sides of that debate. The, the broad consensus seems to be that it's not something that can be subject to filibuster. But there is no bird rule, you know, any kind of uh, reconciliation equivalent for that. 
So even if they were able to get 50 votes, even if Manchin and Sinema were to go along with it, they may not get it through the Senate. Again, I think that Chuck Schumer needs to fire the parliamentarian and get a parliamentarian who's willing to go along with saving American democracy. And even if they were made states, you wouldn't see the impact of that for probably several years. So we have a more immediate issue yeah. right now, and that's, that's where you correctly point out, Steve, that we've got to have H.R. 1, you know, SB 1, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed. And that's exactly. going to require blowing up the, 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 the filibuster. I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, yeah, excuse me, I'm sorry, too. Um, so you, you don't think if, if they were made states immediately that they're going to have, like, senatorial and congressional elections within 90 days? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I've, yeah. I, you know, the last time that we had states added to the map was in the 1950s. I was a little kid. I remember when Alaska and Hawaii were added as states. Uh, I remember the whole thing about, you know, the the national debate about what the flag should look like when we add two more stars to it. Um, but I think I was like six years old or something. I'd have to go back and look and see what year it was that they that they were brought in. So I don't, frankly, have any idea how long it would take, what would be involved. I think if it was D.C. They already have a governance structure in place that probably could be adapted, could adapt itself to becoming, you know, a, a voting member of the House. You already have Eleanor Holmes Norton there and, you know, throwing a couple of senators on. In fact, they have a shadow senator, you know, who just sits in but has no, he can't even speak, actually. So D.C., I think, is ready and could probably move fairly quickly. Puerto Rico, I'm skeptical. I'm very skeptical. Thanks, you know. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call, Steve. Good to hear from you. I don't think that that's going to be a magic bullet, is the bottom line. It's important, and it's something that should be done, uh, you know, simply for the purposes of, you know, reasonable and fair representation. The Democrats in the Senate represent 41 million more Americans than do the Republicans. If we added D.C. and, and Puerto Rico, it would become 37 million more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For our Tom Hartman Book Club excerpt today, we're reading from Ed Morales' new book, Fantasy Island, Colonialism, Exploitation, and the Betrayal of Puerto Rico. This is from the first chapter. There was never any doubt that the United States wanted Puerto Rico for its own when it began a war with Spain near the turn of the 20th century. Cuba had been in the throes of independence war with Spain off and on since 1868, and the conflict that began in 1895 seemed ripe for the United States to capitalize on. The sinking of the USS Maine, an American naval ship destroyed by an explosion while moored just outside Havana, fueled American entry into the war. Although there are conflicting theories about the source of the explosion, including the likelihood it was caused by a spontaneous internal fire, William Randolph Hearst's newspaper chain blew up the incident into the perfect catalyst for the United States to enter the conflict. When Theodore Roosevelt entered the fray with his army of Rough Riders, the whole affair came as no surprise to anyone who had been paying attention to the lust U.S. government leaders and military had long expressed to expand southward and westward. And although the idea of manifest destiny was at the forefront of the political discourse of this period, it's less often observed that the United States' expansionist gaze was saturated with racial language and attitudes, at once desirous of and repelled by Latin America's mestito, mestizo mulatto social dynamic. The Haitian Revolution at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th created a U.S. obsession with both Cuba and Puerto Rico because of the potential of a similar black-led revolt on those islands. 
1826, Virginia Senator John Randolph feared that such a revolt would render the southern United States vulnerable to invasion from Cubans on, in rowboats. For this reason, he objected to the United States participating in the 1826 Panama Congress because American diplomats would have to endure the horror of a U.S. diplomat taking his seat in the Congress, quote, beside the native African, their American descendants, the mixed breeds, the Indians, and the half-breeds, without any offense or scandal at so motley a mixture, end quote. The logic driving this perspective underlined not only the importance of slavery to the emergence of capitalism in the 19th century, but also, as Matthew Karp points out in this vast southern empire, the extent to which slave owners and their elected representatives disproportionately shaped U.S. foreign policy. Going back as far as the Haitian Revolution, fear of a successful slave rebellion in the newly formed United States strongly motivated Southern politicians. As Karp mentions, to that end, Presidents Madison and Monroe, quote, used overwhelming force to destroy black maroon settlements in Southern Florida, end quote. Fear of slave rebellions also briefly united the interests of American slaveholders and Cuban elites who wanted independence from Spain, but in the late 19th century, after abolition, Roosevelt's forces fought in conjunction with Afro-Cuban armies against their common Spanish foe. The move to wrest Cuba and Puerto Rico from Spain came just as Spain had finally relented to end slavery as a concession to black rebel Cuban armies that had formed to push for independence. In a further move to placate continued unrest on the island, in November 1897, Spain signed automatic charters for Cuba and Puerto Rico, which gave limited home rule governments to both islands. Puerto Rico would gain full representation in the Cortes, the Spanish parliament, and could veto Spanish commercial treaties unfavorable to them while also retaining the rights to set tariffs on imports and exports. In this way, Puerto Ricans were granted a kind of citizenship that allowed self-government grafted on what was left of their Spanish subjecthood. On July 25, 1898, eight days after the first meeting of the newly formed Puerto Rican Parliament, U.S. troops arrived in the southern port of Guanaca and replaced the Spanish flag with the Stars and Stripes. This date would be remembered over 50 years later when the United States finally followed through on a project to allow Puerto Ricans to have limited autonomy and self-government. But at the time, it was the, both the end of Teddy Roosevelt's splendid little war and the beginning of the current quandary over what exactly Puerto Rico's new colonial master would do with the island. Although historians agree that there was no pre-existing plan for designating Puerto Rico's status, there was a general belief that Puerto Rico could be incorporated as a U.S. territory and probably would be. This led many to assume that it would follow a similar path to statehood as former territories like Florida and Louisiana. At the very least, it would, by acceding to military control, receive, quote, the advantages and blessings of enlightened civilization, end quote, as Puerto Rico's first military governor, Nelson A. Miles, declared three days after the landing at Guanaca. Because Cuba was so militarized during its wars for independence, the United States decided to allow it national sovereignty, thinking it could still exert considerable control over the economy because of existing business interests and a ready-made set of Cuban consumers who were already buying Ford Model Ts. But although Puerto Rico had experienced anti-Spanish uprisings in the mid-19th century, in 1898 they did not have nearly the same level of armed mobilization present. So the United States held on to it particularly because of its geographic location, which would provide the United States with a stronghold on the easternmost tip of the Caribbean. 
The book is Fantasy Island by Ed Morales. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. A couple of other things that I wanted to share with you that I, I think are very distressing. The first is, and, and I mean, this is like beyond the pale. Uh, we need a beyond the pale alert, I think. There's a lawsuit in Texas where they are claiming that requiring vaccines or even, even giving vaccines these uh, COVID vaccines is a violation of the Nuremberg Code. The Nuremberg Code, uh, you know, Dr. Mengele was this uh, infamous physician in the Third Reich who did just these god-awful torture experiments on uh, mostly Jewish prisoners during the Nazi era. I mean, things like finding out, uh, you know, how, uh, how cold can you get people before you quickly kill them? Or what, what poisons can you inject into people's veins that rapidly kill them? Or, you know, if you drop somebody from 20 feet on their head, you know, I mean, he I mean, was just doing insane things. And, and they were, and he was, he, he worked for Bayer. And they were experimenting, they were doing experimental new drugs on these concentration camp victims. So the Nuremberg Codes is that you don't experiment on prisoners of war. Well, number one, the Nuremberg Code is not an international law. It was a principle. Number two, it's not a U.S. law either. Number three, and probably this should have been number one, the COVID vaccines are not experimental anymore. They have not been experimental since they became available to the general public. They were tested on volunteers. People who, who raised their hand and said, yes, put me in the study. They were tested. They were found to be safe. I mean, they went through three levels of testing. You know, is it, is it safe? Is it effective? Is it safe and effective? Is it, you know, do we have very, very low levels of satisfaction? They went through all that stuff. But this is apparently a popular tactic among anti-vaxxers, even people who are hysterical about measles vaccines and things. And it's wrong. 
It's just wrong. These are not experimental vaccines. The Nuremberg Code does not apply. Um, and the hospitals that, that are, uh, you know, administering vaccines or physicians, you know, they're just trying to protect their employees and their, and their patients from COVID-19. But now Tucker Carlson goes on TV and says that vaccination is the new medical Jim Crow. Tucker Carlson, who refuses to say whether he's vaccinated. Why? Because, uh, you know, little Tucker is probably well vaccinated, almost certainly. And, and I guarantee you, he was in a bubble. I mean, the guy's a multimillionaire. And Fox News is a billion-dollar operation. They're not going to risk their talent. He's not going to risk the gig he's got and the, the, the website he owns and, and, you know, one of the major right-wing websites. So, you know, he goes on TV and he goes, oh, this is, this is uh, medical Jim Crow as Democrats, he, he says, uh, Democrats are forcing Americans essentially to be experimented on. I think what... At the bottom line, what's, what's really going on here is not that Tucker Carlson gives a rat's ass about vaccine. In fact, he's almost certainly vaccinated himself. It's that there is money to be made by generating outrage, phony outrage, faux outrage. If, if you can scare people about things that aren't real, get them all cranked up, I mean, this is, this is Fox's business model. This is right-wing media's business model. And, and frankly, I think it's, it's doing serious damage to this country. You've got now states where uh, we have 12 states. I, in fact, it might be 14 by now, where 70% of the population, of the adult population, has been vaccinated. Joe Biden is trying to hit that number for July 4th. 70%. You've got a dozen states where the, that have already hit that. But Alabama, hey, we just hit 30%. Mississippi, we just hit 31%. Why? Because all you can get on the radio in Alabama and Mississippi is right-wing talk. And everybody watches Fox News. Because they have, you know, put themselves out as, hey, you know, we are the we are the source for, you know, well, the Klan, the reinvention of the Klan as the Republican Party. So, this is pretty grim stuff. The vaccine mandates do not, well, yeah, just the vaccine, do not violate any codes or any laws. Everything's good. It's working. New York City yesterday did not have one single COVID death. Why? Because, you know, they're not watching Fox News. They saw what happened. They were the first to be hit. Badly, anyway. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'll pick up your phone calls. We're here on the Tom Hartman Program. Fair and only slightly unbalanced. Tom Hartman here with you. Paul in Benton, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Yeah, I'm really frustrated over the lack of, it just seems the lack of enthusiasm and motivation for, uh, you know, prosecuting 
the insurrectionists, you know, from January 6th. Glenn Kirshner, who was a former federal prosecutor, was saying that if they wanted to, they could have all these people rounded up in a week. He said anybody that had a cell phone there could be traced. And uh, there's cameras all over everything. I mean, I'm sure they have people smearing feces on the walls and everything. I'm sure they have that all, all on camera. And it just seems like the Justice Department is dragging their feet. Some guy yesterday just had his day in court. That was the first uh, one. one. That was the, the first one, Paul. He got, he got one year. And, yeah, one year. Yeah, one but, year. And I guarantee you, I mean, hell, they arrested 200 Black Lives Matter people for burning a car. 75 people got arrested for putting a trash can on fire. And, I mean, I just, and like with those gallows, I mean, surely that's got to be on, you know, there's got to be a, a photo of that somewhere on a camera. And it just seems to me that this foot dragging and this lack of wanting to prosecute these people, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, once you engage in insurrection or sedition, you lose your rights as an American citizen. You have no more rights anymore. And it just seems to me that this lack of motivation or whatever, I'm looking for the right word, the process, I'm just not seeing it. And I have, you know, I'll tell you, I have no confidence in Mary Garland. I think they just gave him that job because they didn't stand up for him when they wouldn't let him on the Supreme Court, when they wouldn't yeah. give him a hearing. I think that's the only reason they gave him that job. Well, and, and let's not forget that Mary Garland, you know, uh, President Obama wanted a candidate for the Supreme Court that Republicans would vote for. And so he went to Orrin Hatch, the Republican from Utah, former senator, and asked him, who would be an acceptable candidate for the Supreme Court to the Republicans? And Orrin Hatch said, Merrick Garland, this is your guy. And of course, it didn't work out anyway, because Mitch McConnell was uh, dedicated to destroying Obama. But that's, that's kind of an aside. I am not convinced that Merrick Garland is operating along partisan lines. I, I just, I'm wary, that's all. But I think, the, I think the larger issue that you raised, Paul, we got the first conviction, the first guy going to jail. And this guy pled guilty, and he got one year. And from what I read in the paper, uh, this guy was just, you know, some low-level dweeb who showed up. I think they're saving their fire for the people who really organized this. And I think that they're building strong and solid cases. I, at least I hope so. Uh, all the indications seem to indicate that that is the case. I share your, uh, let's say, somewhere between outrage and curiosity about where the hell is the video. I have seen news stories that I have not been able to substantiate one way or the other. You know, these stories that the video inside the Capitol building from the day before January 5th or the three days before January 6th from the 3rd, 4th and 5th, where apparently uh, several of these right wing members of the House were giving yeah, tours, you know, to insurrectionists, that that video has now vanished is, is my understanding that it's only kept for 30 days, and it, but it, it vanished apparently during the Trump administration. I don't know if that's the case, though. I don't, you know, it may well be that they've got it, and they're going to use it against these people, and then they're going to drop the hammer on them. I mean, we're just, it takes a while to build a, a case. That's why, you know, the prosecutors are, are pulling this grand jury on Donald Trump. But uh, going after him for insurrection, I'm not, I'm not seeing any, as far as I can tell, any consequential investigation of the January 5th meeting in the Trump Hotel that looks like it was a war council that happened the night before the, uh, the insurrection. That's definitely premeditation. Yeah, and then you got you know, the, the pipe bomber at the DNC and RNC headquarters. I mean, yeah. there's, there is, and like you said, who, who built the gallows? Who brought the gallows? 
Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, and you take a you take a look at that thing. I mean, that's, those are four by fours, right? I mean, that was. This isn't somebody slapped together some two by fours with some ten penny nails. This this was. I mean, these things are. They got countersunk bolts in this. Uh, somebody put a lot of work and a lot of thought into building a real gallows that would actually be could actually effectively be used to hang people. And then yeah, it they're was marching. A it was a functioning gallows. Yes, and then they're marching through the Capitol, chanting. I mean, hundreds of them chanting, "Hang Mike Pence!" Looking for Mike Pence. And, and meanwhile, you've got a woman saying, "You know, where she's going to put a bullet in Nancy Pelosi's forehead." And they're running around going, "Nancy, where are you?" I mean, this, yeah. this is this is insane. This is absolute screaming, flaming insanity. And then these Republican members of Congress go on Fox News and other right-wing media and go, oh, it was just like t another tourist day. Everything was fine. Nothing to see here. Don't worry. It's all good. Uh, Paul, you know, there has to be a reckoning. There has to be a reckoning. Paul, thank you for the call. I I'm sorry to cut you off, but it, we're, we're out of time here. I, I am, I share your outrage. I don't, I don't know how to say it beyond that. And we all, I think, need to be expressing that in every way we can to our elected officials, particularly our federal elected officials. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? Yeah, talking about, uh, what, what, I can't even see her name. Uh, cinema. Mansion and, and uh, cinema, yeah. Uh, they're bo in both those states, there's heavy-duty mining interests. you got the coal mining in West Virginia. You have in uh, Arizona, you've got... Uh, you know, it could be a number of minerals that get mined there. And I got to think that those those interests are leaning on either of them. So how do you counter that? Arizona needs water. I don't know if Schumer can use some kind of a carrot regarding that. Uh, there's been all sorts of uh, environmental damage done in West Virginia, the uh, you know, the mountaintop removals for, for mining. Again, I don't know if Schumer has some kind of a, a carrot regarding that. But I think that's what's going on is the, you know, whether it's Coke Industries or any other big mining company, they're leaning on them. And that's one of the things about the infrastructure bill is that it's going to be going toward fixing the environment and having green jobs and more solar and wind, the electric charging stations and so on. And mining companies, uh, they may not want to deal with the regulations that might be coming down their throat. Well, and the so, fossil fuel industry is positively hysterical about this, Dennis. Yeah, well, you know, Exxon, a week or so ago, the, the new executive board of Exxon now is pro-green. We'll see well, how far that three goes. three members, three out of, I believe, 12 are now okay. uh, pro-green. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a but, huge deal, know, but it's not a majority. No, it isn't. But, you know, that that's a whole other issue, too, about why the fossil fuel industry doesn't switch uh switch course, change course, and, and start investing in alcohol fuel and solar uh, and wind. Uh, but that's another issue. But, but as far as uh, uh, the two senators, uh, the roadblocks to getting the infrastructure bill passed, I don't know what. I'm not exactly sure where I am with that, whether Biden should get it down to about $1.2 trillion take some of the things out that he would want. It'll like, be meaningless if he does that, Dennis. This is, this bit, the, the money is going to be spent over an eight-year period. 
Yeah. You, you got $1.2 trillion over eight years. It, it is going to be insignificant. It's going to be meaningless. And people aren't, they're, they're going to barely notice what's going on. Yeah, and, and, so, it's not gonna, and it's not going to rescue us from climate change, which is, by the way, one of the more important issues of our day. Yeah, and that, that's where he needs to, to draw the line and say, look, I, maybe I could give up something like the, the child care, but we have to have uh, what we can do about the environment right. in that bill. We, we need have to electrify transport, transportation is the bottom line. But yeah. that, you know, that's, and that's going to require a lot of money. But that, and, and that is the specific area where the fossil fuel industry is the most freaked out. And, mm -hmm. and, and the billionaires that have been made by the fossil fuel industry. And uh, I, I just, it, it looks to me like they are reaching out uh, you know, with their money-covered, grimy little hands to, to grab a couple of Democratic senators and, and flip them. They don't need to leave the party. They just need to, to, to hamstring the party, and that's what they're doing. Dennis, thank you for the call. I, 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 it, it just it looks to me like sabotage. I think that's probably the best word for it, that, that these, these wealthy, these, these right-wing billionaires and these fossil fuel industry in, in interests are making an attempt to sabotage the Democratic Party and via that, America will be back. Jane in Gadsden, Alabama. Hey, Jane, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Well, a lot. <laughs> but I'm starting to see, not you now, you, your hair's been on fire, but I'm starting to see people paying attention. But we're running out of time, and I am mm -hmm. in a panic. And then I heard you say something uh, earlier. Why the reason I grabbed my phone was what you said about Schumer need, needing to fire the parliamentarian. Yes. I did not know that he had this option. He does. He has the well, power to do why, that. What's he waiting for? Well, that's a damn good question, Jane. I, you know, it would be viewed as a nakedly partisan act, but hey, well, Trent yeah. Lott did this in 2001. So it's not like it hasn't been done before. This is one of several tests, shall we say, of Schumer's mm -hmm. leadership, in my opinion. He's not on fire enough, in my opinion. He's not panicked enough, in my opinion. We're running out of time. And I've been saying for several months now that I think that Manchin and Cinema are on the take. Mm -hmm. They're being paid off. Yep. And I'm glad to hear you say that today. And do you think that they might have an objection as to going down in the history books as, as the people who put an end to our democracy? Or do you think maybe they believe the old thing about, well, that, who was it, Barr said that the winners write the history books? What do uh, you think? Yeah, it was, uh, Hitler paraphrased that. Uh, somebody else said that, but yes. Uh, well, yeah, and Bob, Bill Barr said that, too. Bill um, Barr, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of stuff here at work. I, I think Manchin and Cinema are probably different situations. Joe Manchin's already rich. I mean, he's really rich. Kirsten Cinema is not, and so the 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 you know the, the willingness of a person to go down in history as the person who destroyed democracy in exchange for having five, ten, fifteen million bucks stuffed into her checking account, um, you know, for a lot of people, they, they would do it, right? I mean, you know, and and it's looking to me like that's what's going on. I mean, I'm just guessing. I'm just speculating. I realize I'm 
I'm uh, uh, casting aspersions, I suppose. Well, I know, but it's the only thing that makes sense. Yeah, with Manchin, up until recently, I had been assuming that he, th this was about political survival. You know, West Virginia went for Trump by, uh, you know, the neighborhood of 30 points. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, it's a very, very red state. And so I always figured Joe Manchin was walking a fine line, but Arizona is a purple state, and Kirsten Cinema had a lot of support, and uh, and there was a time in her political career. I mean, she she climbed that political ladder by being a, a, a Bernie Sanders kind of progressive. And now she has completely flipped, and and so when you see people flip core philosophical stuff, the stuff that is at the core of literally who you are and why you're there, you yeah. have to ask why would somebody make that kind of change. And exactly. typically people do it either because they want something or because they're afraid of something. And, you know, I mean, the two great human motivators, right? Uh, you know, moving toward pleasure and moving away from pain. And, yeah. and so I, up until now, I've been assuming that Joe Manchin was moving away from pain. He was trying to avoid, you know, angering the, the Republicans in West Virginia. Kirsten Cinema, I think she might be moving toward money. It's, it's the only thing that makes sense to me in her case. Me and she, too. Yeah. Me too. Jane, um, thank, thank you for the call. Good talking to you. And she's, she's also the, the more vulnerable one because she's not a wealthy person or was not, you know, uh, a couple of years ago. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Treason and Betrayal, The Rise and Fall of Individual One by Kenneth Ford McCallion. This is from the prologue. It was a gray, overcast day in Washington on January 20th, 2017, the day that Donald J. Trump was sworn in as 45th president of the United States. The weather matched the mood of the majority of Americans who had voted for Hillary Clinton, but whose candidate was denied the election as a result of an anachronistic electoral college system, a lackluster Clinton campaign that had ignored key battleground states such as Michigan and Wisconsin, and of course substantial help from the Russians. But the most significant assault on American democracy did not result from the illegal hacking and cyber attacks by Russian agents on our electoral system and social media. Rather, it came from Donald Trump's full-scale assault on American ideals and values, which had long been this country's most powerful weapon in its arsenal of democracy. In his grim inauguration speech, Trump basically announced the end of American exceptionalism, the hallowed concept and conviction that the United States has a special mission and place in history. 
instead of extolling the virtues of our democracy and calling upon its citizens to raise the torch of liberty in every corner of this country and around the world, Trump took the cynical view that the United States was no better or worse than Russia or any other authoritarian country, and that all our government should be doing is to put America first by concentrating on building our country's economic wealth over all other considerations, and by not worrying about other concerns such as human rights or even democratic rights and freedoms around the world. Trump's denouncement of America's commitment to liberty and justice for all was a frontal attack on the guiding principles forming the bedrock of our democracy and America's faith in itself and in its transcendent mission. The Declaration of Independence had been a clarion call that resonated not only on this continent, but around the world, declaring that the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was the cherished goal of all Americans and freedom-loving people the world over. Now, Trump was seeking to extinguish that fire by declaring that America was no longer the beacon of liberty and that every country, especially Russia, should be permitted to do whatever they wanted in their own country and its own sphere of influence. And that if they dismembered neighboring countries or slaughtered their own people who were fighting for greater civil and human rights, that this was of no importance to the United States. In other words, Trump was articulating precisely what Putin and others in the Kremlin wanted to hear, which is that Trump would give them the green light to rebuild the Russian Empire without fear of opposition or retaliation by the U.S. In doing so, Trump was demonstrating that he was a traitor to the traditional American democratic ideals. The enduring concept of American exceptionalism dates back to French writer Alexis de Tocqueville's reflections on America in his 1835 work, Democracy in America, where he concluded, quote, the position of the Americas is therefore quite exceptional, and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one, end quote. Abraham Lincoln echoed this theme of American uniqueness when he noted in his Gettysburg Address in 1863 that one of the things that sets us apart from all of the countries in history is the sacred duty of the United States to ensure that the government of the people, of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from this earth. Since the end of the Civil War and up until January 20th, 2017, the idea of American exceptionalism has infused the rhetoric of virtually every modern president and political leader. In April 1917, near the end of the First World War, President Woodrow Wilson exhorted Americans to fulfill the country's destiny to make the world safe for democracy. In his State of the Union address in January 1941, when the future of liberal democracies in a world war against fascism hung in the balance, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt sent a message to its besieged Democratic allies around the world, reassuring them that, quote, we Americans are vitally concerned in your defense of freedom. We are putting forth our energies, our resources, and our organizing powers to give you the strength to regain and maintain a free world. This is our purpose and our pledge, end quote. 58 years ago, in his inaugural speech on 19, in January 1961, President John F. Kennedy reminded Americans that it was our country's fun fundamental duty to protect human rights at home and around the world. He pledged that Americans would bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure that survival and the success of liberty. Ronald Reagan inspired us with his soaring rhetoric about America being a shining city on the hill, a beacon for freedom, hope, and liberty that was and always will be the model and example for all the world. President Obama, in April 2009, publicly announced, acknowledged America's, quote, extraordinary role in leading the world toward peace and prosperity, end quote, 
while cautioning that such a lofty goal could only be achieved through effective partnerships with other countries. He also often reminded us that America is, at its core, a good and caring nation that must work tirelessly in the cause of democracy and human rights all around the world. With Trump, this powerful concept of American exceptionalism, which has been enshrined in our nation's psyche for almost 200 years, was declared to be dead and buried, or so Donald Trump and his enablers would like us to believe. In the immortal words of Stephen Colbert, Trump, in his easily forgettable inaugural speech, basically compared America to a dumpster fire. America's longstanding mission to preserve and protect the causes of democracy, freedom, and human rights around the world had, according to Trump, virtually devastated the country. Treason and Betrayal is the book. Congressman Mark Pocan is on the line with us here on the Tom Hartman program, our national progressive town hall meeting with Congressman Pocan. He represents the second uh, district of Wisconsin. He's a member and former co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He's on the Appropriation, Education, and Labor Committees in the U.S. House of Representatives. Pocan.house.gov is his website, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Congressman Pocan, welcome back. What's what's on your mind? What's at the top of your list this week? Uh, hey, Tom. Uh, glad to be back. You know, this is a week that uh, we just got the president's budget. And for those of us who serve on appropriations, you know, this is my busy period. June and July, we get the bills on the floor in July, our fiscal year in September 30th. So we got lots of work to do because the uh, first year of any new presidency, the budget always gets released a little late. What we normally get in March, we got the end of May and a lot of scramble. We're still trying to get the infrastructure bill done. And uh, I think since we last talked, it was right before the Senate rejected the bipartisan commission uh, to look at what happened on January 6th. So I think there's a lot of pressure on the Senate to start acting and doing some things and getting around the filibuster. And we're plenty busy in the House with infrastructure and the budget bill. And it's going to be a busy couple months and people should be uh, watching everything so they can reach out to their elected representatives and being heard. Yeah, it, it, it certainly seems that way. You said the infrastructure bill is still in the process of being constructed. I noticed a news story this morning, and I can't vouch for the veracity of it. I've only seen it in one site, one place. But it suggested that the uh, the office of the Senate parliamentarian was saying, uh, wait a minute, if you think you're going to pass this thing by reconciliation, you're going to have to run every single paragraph of it past me first. There's people saying, hey, uh, the parliamentarian's uh, opinion is not binding. It's merely advisory. You know, so just ignore that. And then there's other people. So apparently there's this whole new debate. Is that a consideration for you guys in constructing the first draft of this thing? Well, I mean, the good news is, is unlike, you know, when we had a problem with minimum wage, even though we would say it had a fiscal impact, it wasn't a fiscal matter by the federal budgets, you know, fiscal uh, condition. However, clearly uh, infrastructure would be right. So I think, you know, I worry a bit less about that. What I'm worried most about right now is, Getting to 50, which means people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and then, you know, convincing them that the Republicans, although I don't think anyone needs convincing, the Republicans aren't serious about trying to actually negotiate and compromise. Uh, so far, they put out things that, you know, basically it's like funding with a bake sale, right? It's a pretty ridiculous level of infrastructure that they're suggesting. And if they don't come to the table, that doesn't mean that people are going to go hungry. We're still going to serve the meal. And I think that, you know, we just need uh, to make sure that, you know, everything we're doing in there, um, you know, is appropriate to the rules of reconciliation. But the fact that everything costs money and follows that fiscal definition, 
I think largely uh, will, will be there. It's really let's just make sure that those few Democratic senators that have been holding out thinking Republicans are suddenly going to uh, turn into, uh, you know, cooperative uh, agents. Once we get them realizing that's not happening, I think we can move ahead. We learned that at least one of the senators who is pro-filibuster, I don't want to get into naming names of your colleagues or in the Senate, but a Democrat is listed on the ALEC website as an ALEC alumni. What does that mean? I mean, is that should that concern us? I'll tell you, it depends on how they remember. Because don't forget, Tom, um, I was an ALEC member to go in and go undercover and give all their secret materials to all the groups in Washington so we knew what their agenda was. So, you know, you got to be a little careful with that definition or else I might look a little different. But most people who belong to ALEC believed at some level in ALEC, and that could be an issue. But, you know, I, I think the bigger issue is just anyone who's looking at how the Republicans are operating right now is they're not serious players. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy have been very clear that if Donald Trump says dance, they're going to say, okay, which one? And that they're not going to continue to negotiate because they're afraid of their own base and some of their own members like Marjorie Trader Greene. So at the end of the day, I think the message is getting louder and more clear to them, but we've got to make sure they act on the fact that Republicans aren't serious about trying to crop, you yeah. know, compromise and yeah. work with us. I'm with you. I, that, that's amazing. I had been wary of saying Marjorie Trader Green in my, you know, I used that in a couple of tweets, but you know, in the pieces that I was writing, uh, for fear of blowback, but apparently it's common parlance in the yeah. Democratic Caucus. I'll say, oops, I made a mistake. How's that, oh, Tom? But, okay, uh, that, thank you. Thank I you, Congress. I know exactly where I was at. Yeah, no, I get it. Okay, let's pick up some phone calls here. It's Omar in Herndon, Virginia. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Tom, thank you so much for taking my call. Mr. Pocan, um, I... I just want to know whether the congressman who assisted the rioters on uh, January 6th will be unmasked. And the second question that I have, uh, the G7 nations are basically closing in on uh, a deal where they're going to increase 15% tax on uh, the largest corporation in the world. I just want to know what role is Congress going to play in that or have they ever decided regarding that matter? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, to the second one, Congress can't make other nations, you know, adjust tax code or work with us on that. However, the will of the White House certainly can. And it makes sense for all countries, rather than racing on a road to poor economic conditions for everyone. Uh, we all should, you know, make these corporations pay like they're supposed to, because that way everyone has tax revenue revenue to provide services for their constituents. On, on the issue of the one six, you know, it's interesting. Republicans played a, a pretty dumb game of chicken on this commission because we had a bipartisan commission where they would have had much more say and by them not agreeing to it and being hyper partisan like they were we're still going to be able to move ahead and we're going to get it done and, and nancy pelosi's got a few scenarios but i think we should be as aggressive as possible in getting the information i trust the american people way more than the cult members in washington or state capitals that we watch every day and i think we need to get this information out for history's sake and it will happen and the republicans may not be as a part of it which is a, a real shame but i think it's also a mistake they made ron in chicago yes uh, can anybody can anything be done about states like texas they want you they want to repeal all the gun laws no license no permits let everybody have a gun i think you know there's a lot that we're trying to get done federally and again with the same problem with the filibuster rules you're not going to see 
things that have 80, 90 percent public support get done and why we've got to adjust those. But it's really hard to go after anything that's currently in a state zone of what, what they can do. And Texas clearly is trying to appeal to their base rather than worry about public safety. But we've got some federal bills that we'd like to get done that would provide extra securities you yeah. know, compromise and yeah. work with us. And uh, David in Racine, Wisconsin, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, Tom, I love your show. Um, Congressman Mark, a um, couple weeks ago, I'm a truck driver, so a couple weeks ago, the guy from Texas said we should have a vehicle mileage tax usage, 25 cents a mile. And I actually think it's a good idea, but what we need to do is spin it and say, whose product is on the truck? So if I'm heading to Walmart, Walmart would pay that. If I'm going to Amazon, Amazon would pay that. That way we're not raising their taxes, but they're gonna pay to have used the roads and bridges because they're the ones using the roads and bridges. What do you think? Wow. Yeah, it's interesting, David. I mean, I'll tell you, so a number of years ago when Paul Ryan was still not even speaker, chair of the budget committee, and I used to serve on the budget committee, he had a hearing about how we could pay for infrastructure, essentially road infrastructure in the future, given there's so many fuel efficient vehicles. Obviously, the gas tax wouldn't serve and be as effective in the future. And they got to talking about, you know, by miles traveled. And it brought out everyone who believes in black helicopters in the world were upset about that we'd even talk about that idea. And I saw why it was going to be difficult to kind of figure out how we do this moving forward. I think you point out the uh, uh, interesting aspect about, you know, how we could do that. But I still think we're going to run into some um, obstacles. But, you know, we're also talking self-driving vehicles in the future. We're going to continue to have uh, EVs and other fuel-efficient vehicles. And we're going to have to get a better grasp on this. So I, I think it's an intriguing idea, David. But I think, you know, the bigger issue we're having, period, is once you get to Miles Track, people think it's someone tracking where they're going. And, man, did it get a response. Wow. So, uh, Kathy in Morrow, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Representative Pocan. I'm wondering if you agree with me that cinema and mansion need to be removed from their committees because they don't believe in democracy. Kathy, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do something I don't like doing. I'm not going to give you a direct answer. What I'm going to say is I am very disappointed in any senator who doesn't by now understand that Republicans aren't serious about governing and that all they're trying to do is win elections and look towards 2022 and make Joe Biden look bad. And if you think that they're suddenly going to change after how they behave for the last four years and how they behave for the first five months of this year, that's the problem, right? I think they just have to get real about they were elected by their constituents. They should have these conversations directly with their constituents. But to say we're going to do nothing because the Republicans want to, for political reasons, do that, I think is is a, a huge mistake, and they should have to answer their constituents about that question. Judy in Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you, Tom. Good morning, Representative Pocan. Louis DeJoy, I know we've been beating this to death, but no one has brought up the fact that U.S. Code 18, Sections 1701 and 1703 provide us a good way to get rid of him because what he has done by slowing the U.S. mail down is a felony that's subject to a fine up to three years imprisonment. So why don't we just arrest him? Yeah, I hear what you're saying, Judy. I think it's obviously not as easy or else I think some people would be looking at how to move forward. 
The problem is he's doing a lot of this under guise of, of the direction he had in the Trump administration for efficiencies. And, and quite honestly, even before he was there, they were removing our processing sorting equipment. In fact, before he was there in my district, they took it out of Madison, Wisconsin, the second biggest city in our state, and uh, dismantled it. Everything now in Wisconsin, rather than being done in several spots, is done out of Milwaukee, which slowed it down. But that happened before DeJoy. So, you know, in many ways, there's problems that have just existed with this fantasy that they're losing money at the Postal Service. The main reason there's been a loss of money is because they have to pre prepay employee benefits 75 years into the future, which no other business or agency has to do. That alone is without question the sig most significant impact on them financially that hurts them, and that has to be changed. And, you know, again, Republicans who want to privatize aren't looking to do that. That's part of our problem. But you know, to, to be blunt and fair, Judy, a lot of those problems happened even before DeJoy by this kind of efforts to try to privatize. And we just have to you know, be honest and explain this ridiculous prefunding. Is there any legislation right now before Congress to block that? Pardon the interruption, but we just have 30 seconds. Yes, there is. There is legislation like that, and it should be moving, and a lot of us would like to see it move. Again, I think our Senate issue might come up, but I can't tell you why it hasn't moved in the first few months of this year, and he was willing to go into places that no one should go, much less someone who had a position like he had. And, you know, watching uh, a liar lie, I guess, is uh, just means that you're a member of the Trump administration uh, all too often. But it's very, very sad that people who are at that position in our federal government are now doing things like this. It just shows how awful those last four years are and how hopefully we will never go back to that. At least we've turned a page for now, but we've got to remember how awful things can be when you put a demagogue in office. Yeah. Are you hearing about any attempts to prosecute ringleaders of this thing, looking into the meeting in Trump Hotel on January 5th, et cetera? Yeah, I think part of this is they're still getting that information. It's part of their investigations and they can't give us more but, you know, it's being pushed on right-wing radio all the time, which is just nuts. Congressman, we just have 15 seconds to the end of the hour. Any thoughts you want to share with us? Um, just, you know, again, I think because a lot's going to happen in June and July that's going to be really important for the country, be always, as your listeners are, very vigilant and willing to reach out to your members of the House and the Senate and be heard as well as your state legislatures. And don't forget also redistricting. We really have to be engaged on that. So... Let's be active participants in our democracy. Amen. Congressman Mark Pokin, thanks so much for dropping by today. Always great talking with you. Of course. Thank, Thank you. you, Tom. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.